You're listening to the Women of Worth podcast, hosted by me, Audrey Bellis, founder of Worthy Women. We explore what it means to live and lead in integrity as women of worth. We are here today with Dr. Erin Quinn. Erin, welcome to the Women of Worth podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself. I know you've had a very long career with USC, so you're local to the LA area. Yes, I am. I'm a native of Northeast Los Angeles. I grew up on Mount Washington. My father was a was an artist, a watercolorist, one of the California watercolorists. My mother was a social worker who was actually also an L.A. native. So, Oh, I love that. I feel like we don't often hear about people that are native Angelinos. Too often we hear about transplants. Uh, similar to myself, I grew up in Long Beach. So only a few miles, actually, from where we're, we were sitting today is where I grew up. And um, the L.A. of then, so I was born in uh, 1957, is very different than it is today. I think a lot of positive changes have been made. And um, let me see. So I went to Catholic school. I went to, went to grammar school in Cypress Park, which is in northeast Los Angeles. I went to Catholic school for all of my education. And in the 70s, there was a lot of drugs and a lot of issues in Los Angeles. So I had um, uh, three brothers that were addicts and a lot of issues. And I had realized that education was really my way to to leave that and to move forward. And uh, my father had been ill and so was unable to work. So I basically worked through high school. I was a waitress at Sarno's restaurant, which some of the older Angelinos would remember on Vermont Avenue, north of Sunset in um, Los Feliz area. Went to Immaculate Heart High School, which I think for me was very uh, transformative in being a woman of believing in my worth Mm -hmm. and still feel that with all my classmates today class of 1975 and decided I wanted to go go off to college but I hadn't realized and this is something that's been foundational for me in helping young women and young men with their careers was that I didn't realize I could really get a scholarship and go away no one told me I could do that Mm. and things were so kind of hectic at home with my brothers and my older sister had kind of moved and become a hippie in Northern California. And so I was kind of just working, going to school, busy, and so didn't realize what some of the possibilities were. So I didn't even apply to any of the UCs or to any schools. I was just going to go become a nurse, and I just would, had gotten into Humboldt State. Oh, that's where my sister went. <laughs> Although I think my sister went because there was a lot of weed. <laughs> that wasn't the reason I wanted to go. I wanted to get away from that. Anyway, but then after I graduated from high school, I traveled across country in this old New Yorker sit down with my friend Margie Lau. And we went all through all the states, left the car in Miami, flew to the Virgin Islands and camped out there. And I went up to the East Coast and I said, I want to come to the East Coast to go to school. So I came back, did not uh, matriculate at Humboldt, transferred to San Diego State, started taking classes and uh, living with a friend of my mother's. And immediately within the first week of being back, I applied to Bennington College in Vermont, which was my dream school. But see, I I had never thought, well, someone can help you pay for it. I just knew that there wasn't money at home. So anyway, so I got a full scholarship to Bennington. So I transferred to Bennington, which was another transformational move for me. It's a school where you design your own education and you put it together and have to justify why you're doing what you do. And you meet with your faculty all the time and have strong mentors. So it was the perfect place for me. And so then after, uh, after that, I had a great Spanish teacher when I was at Bennington, and he said, you should go to Granada. You'd love Granada. So I went to Granada and did my junior year in Spain. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So then after, then of course I fell in love, because who doesn't fall in love when they're 20, with a Spaniard, and um, graduated from Bennington and then went back and was working for the Foreign Mission Board. Interesting. So I'd done lots of interesting things. I was a... Um, while I was in college at Bennington, because they have you go off and do a field work term every winter. Mm-hmm. So I was a congressional intern in Washington. Then for my senior year, I did a, a, um, an anthropological study on the gypsies that were integrating into the university system in Granada, which if you can believe it, which is a huge university, there's 50,000 students there. And there oh, were wow. three gypsy students that I got I mean. to know. So it's, you know... Anyway, very interesting stuff. But I did lots of interesting things. And my degree was actually in biology and political science. 
And I came back to go to graduate school at USC. And um, I started off thinking that I was going to go into the Foreign Service and be a consular, you know, um, work in the consulates somewhere overseas because of my Spanish language skills, et cetera. And then I, start, I found a job by chance. I didn't have a car, so I had to find a job that was close to where my parents lived. And um, I ended up getting a job at USC in the Women's Hospital, which has been mm-hmm. shuttered now, but part of LA County USC, and fell in love with healthcare and decided that that's where I actually put my energy was to help improve health. And then through that, I actually realized that what uh, so I started out as a medical secretary, and I can say I am the only medical secretary who then became a dean. So I really worked my way up. That is incredible. And you were at USC for how long? At USC since 19. I started there in fall of 1981. And then I left for six months in 1982 to help the doctors I was working for in gynecologic oncology develop their practice at Good Sam, because this is before there was a university hospital, right. so everything was, if you if they had a private practice, it was off-site. A lot of docs were at Good Sam or at Huntington, and then once they built the university hospital, everyone who was going to be on the faculty had to bring their practices to, to the university hospital. But anyway, so I went over there to help them build that practice, and then came back in 1983, and uh, actually Valentine's Day, 19. 19- 83 was my restart date at USC, but I've been around it since 1981. That's incredible. One of the things that I love that you touched on, um, actually a couple of things, religion. I, I'm i a practicing Catholic. I grew up in an interfaith family. My mom is Catholic. My dad's Jewish. Um, and I remember I used to want to go to private school so bad. And my mom used to use that as the threat because for her, she grew up with too much religion. And she was always like, if you misbehave, we're going to send you to private school. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my gosh, all I ever wanted to do was to go to private school because I grew up in Paramount, um, close to North Long Beach, where it's predominantly Latino, Mexican, Catholic households. And all my friends that I grew up with had very Catholic parents. And my parents were very much like, well, we both grew up with excessive amounts of religion. So since you kids are mixed, we're going to let you choose what you feel resonates more with you. So. I didn't do my first Holy Communion until I was 17 and I drove myself there. Mm-hmm. And back then we didn't have an RCIA program. So I used to go for two years in a row on Saturdays to sit with the first graders. And when I did my first Holy Communion at 17, I actually walked down the aisle to do that with the first graders. So my, oh my photos gosh. have all yeah. the little kids in front of me <laughs> and I couldn't find a white dress in my size. So my dad took me to David's bridal to go find one. And... I remember it was so important for me because I always grew up feeling not Jewish enough and not Catholic enough and not Mexican enough and not Italian (laughs) enough. And I was never quite enough. I was always stuck in the middle. And as an adult, um, religion has been such an interesting experience for me. I had a broken engagement in my, um, well, I want to say mid-20s. I was like 24. Um, So it's roughly mid-20s. And I remember... um, And this is when I started going to daily mass. I was so depressed and I felt like my whole world had fallen down around me. I felt like I had compromised my integrity to be in a relationship. And for a smart girl, I couldn't figure out how I had gotten here. And every day I would get up and, um, you know, you spoke about addiction. Worthy Women is very much centered around almost like a 12-step program philosophy where it's about cleaning your side of the street and owning your experience. And that's all I needed to do. If I could get up every day and I could go to mass, I could set my intentions for the day, I could cry in peace where nobody was judging me, I could feel, I felt like I was coming home, and it was only a 30-minute mass, but if I just started my day that way, then I was reminded that all I ever had to do was just get through that day, and if I did that, I could get up and do it again tomorrow, and I'm now, I just turned 31, so it's been uh, seven years. You're the same age as my daughter's. Yeah. So it's been seven years and I still go to daily mass every day and every day it's part of my personal practice. And if I don't go to daily mass, I'm not quite right. And my team knows it. You know, they'll joke with me. Have you been to mass today, Audrey? Did you go meditate on your poof? Um, And but I say that because as an adult, uh, even on my social media, I find that when I post when I do post content related to daily mass, people shy away from it. I veil. 
I actually wear I wear a, a chapel veil in English. We call it a mantellina in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I'm like the only person under the age of 80 that wears it. Um, well, I have my mantilla from when I was little. Oh, that's <laughs> so actually from beautiful. Yeah. My grandma gave me mine. She brought it for me from Mexico. And yeah. I think that there is something for me so humbling to put it on mm-hmm. to feel like, okay, I'm going into this mode of um, – of humility and walking into an experience that, you know, this is going to be uniquely mine. And, and now that I'm an adult, um, I, for a long time was striving to meet other young Catholic women. And I even went through a period after my broken engagement where I was spending so much time getting involved. I'm a board member for Catholic Charities Los Angeles that I, I even thought I was going to become a nun Thankfully, everybody around me was like, that's a little extreme. I don't know if you want a life of service in that way. You can be of service in other ways. Um, But as an adult, I I look for, you know, I go to daily mass and there aren't other people that are my age. Um, I participate with Catholic charities and the other board members are over 70. I'm I'm literally the token young person and they call me that. I have been referred to as we brought you on because we needed somebody young. And you fit that bill. And Mm -hmm. so recently I got connected with a group actually online um, and it's called Blessed Is She. And it's a phenomenal group of young Catholic women. They send out um, a daily devotional, a beautiful artwork. Um, They put out uh, journals for different things. So for example, right now that we're going through Lent, uh, they put out a beautiful uh, journal and the hashtag for it is called Put On Love. And how do you put on love in your life every day? And I think that is such a beautiful experience. And I love to hear other people talk about how their spirituality and their religion has um, shaped them because I think too often in today's world, it's always a negative experience. Or we hear more about the negative experiences of I was stifled, I had this, I, you know, was, um, you know, in this image of like, you know, the nun with the ruler slapping you on the back of the hands when it doesn't have to be such a thing. Well, I have to say that my grammar school, the, the nuns with the rulers and all of that, I was scared that to was death real. of them. That's real. But my high school actually in the 70s, Immaculate Heart, the Immaculate Heart community, they were the Immaculate Heart nuns, were the first nuns to say, we're not going to wear habits anymore. And so they- They're like the previous version of nuns on the bus. They actually, you know, kept the, believed in education and um, said we can do more for if we're not wearing habits. And so they became the Macklin Heart community. So I had very incredible nuns that I got to work with as in my formative years, my high school years, I would say. And um, so I, I too volunteer and actually we volunteer in the Catholic Charities building in Ventura and make food one. I just do one day a month with friends that are from the parish up there. Um, I myself stopped going to mass I go to Mass because I enjoy Mass, but I stopped going to Mass on a regular basis because I was very angry with the church and the whole scandal with the abuse of small children yes. and things like that. So that's something I just had to deal with. But I, I kind of live my faith through um, the work that I do for others in terms of my volunteer work. And I also think that one of the things that we can do as part of faith is, is just show kindness to people yes. and to listen to people and to help people because... We don't have enough of that in well, our world today. And quite frankly, you've made an entire career out of helping people. So that is a life of service. It is. And so I should so I, I should speed forward because otherwise I can talk forever. But when I started working at USC and I kept going to school. And so I finished my uh, master's degree. I, I transferred from USC and I went to Cal State LA and I got a master's in education. And I actually studied... Um, once again, I created my own degree, and you can do that at Cal State LA, but you have to figure out how to do it, and I did figure it out. But I, So I was looking at how do people acquire language, Spanish language, whether they're going into the health fields or the education fields, and then what's the best way to gain it a second language. So I studied that. Was my, my thesis was on that. Then I went back to USC and, and did a finished a master's in, in health administration, which in those days was called MP, Master's of Public Administration with an right. emphasis in health. And I, I loved my education at USC. And then I went on for my doctorate, and I got my doctorate in the School of Public Administration, focusing on health services. And I also um, did gerontology. We were the um, there were three of us that actually got this same degree because we were the guinea pigs for starting the PhD program in the School of Gerontology at USC. So it was a combination, but I had a great experience. And so as soon as I um, 
I had worked in the Department of Preventive Medicine, and I ran their Institute for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention. And then when I finished my degree, I'd, well, I'd been recruited over to family medicine to run the Department of Family Medicine, which is the largest department that really does the most student education. And I was asked to become the administrator there. And so I did that. And when I finished my PhD, then I was asked to go on faculty. And I started teaching the classes on health policy and health economics to the medical students. And then within a couple of years of that, I, I ended up being the person that the students came to for help. Mm. I think because I'm a good listener. And so I ended up helping people when they found out they were pregnant or when they found out there was problems with their family or whatever it was. So the woman who had been the dean of women um, passed away. And so when they were looking for a new dean of women, they selected me. So in 1993, I became the dean of women at the medical school. That is incredible. So that was really fun. So I did that. And then in 1998, I was asked to become the dean of admissions for the medical school. And what they hadn't realized is I had done my dissertation actually on increasing the number of Latinos in medicine and how to use mm. qualitative factors, which now they call holistic review and things like that. But anyway, I, that was what my interest was, was how do we create a workforce that's reflective of the community to meet the needs of the community? So I had a, um, a person, Bob Montoya, who was a real mentor to me. And he was the one who first got me to realize this idea, well, we have to have a workforce that reflects the community. And he was the first person that made me really realize, and this was back in the 80s, that we, in the early 80s, that we didn't have... Diversity and inclusion. Diversity, diversity and inclusion. We didn't have those terms either then, but that's okay. The concept was there. And so I learned from Dr. Bob Montoya and... Um, I've worked with lots of great people, including Dr. Hector Flores, who was at White Memorial, where we started a family practice residency program. And so anyway, so I just, that became my thing. And so actually, when I became dean of admissions, and I had a wonderful dean at that point, Dr. Steve Ryan, and I said, you know, we have to level the playing field by how we do admissions. Otherwise, if we use the same criteria, you're just going to get the same old thing, and it's not going to change how we provide care to people. So he was very supportive. He's, he's now passed away. So... I became dean and started doing that and, and loved it for a long time. And in the first year, first year of doing that, doubled the number of minority admissions using our new admissions criteria that I'd created and getting wonderful people on my admissions committee, et cetera. And so then actually a year later when the UCs, their numbers for minority admission kept dropping. And so they came to me and said, how did you do, how do you do this? So then I was served on a committee with the UCs to help talk about a more inclusive and who you select for medical school and how you have to use other criteria besides just GPA and MCAT. You know, that's very interesting. For Worthy Women, our audience is 70 plus percent Latinas and African-American women. And um, we've heard from sponsors and corporate partners that we work with. We even have a program called Worthy uh, Leadership, um, Worthy Leaders that we implement with diversity and inclusion programs. And they always tell us, how do you get so many brown women? We even have another podcast called Brown Girls Rising. They go, how do you get all the brown women? You're not like white girl Instagram. And I said, no, we're not because we aren't. We we published a, a piece on this earlier this year called We Are the Daughters of Immigrants. My entire team, we all self-identify as women of color. And so our audience has naturally grown to be extensions of us because originally it was our friends and then their friends. And we have a lot of people... Oftentimes, other conference organizers or other event organizers who are like, oh, we're really looking for women of color, and you have a lot of them. Can you make introductions? Because we can't find them anywhere. And I'm always so offended by that or even being told, for example, um, I had somebody tell me this for a, conf a conference organizer. She said, hey, Audrey, I need women of color, and you're a Latina, but you have a white name, so you're like super palatable to people. How do you feel about participating? And I go, this is not affirmative action for your you know, your speaking panel, I'm going to participate because I want your audience. But um, it's a very interesting dialogue for us, especially where we're at politically um, and where we're at as women in the current state of the United States, especially following the women's marches, um, to feel like this is still a conversation that we need to be having. Well, I think one of the things that's different, I'm going to say that when I look back on myself, is that we didn't identify. The we way just, we, we do now? We just no, existed? We yeah. just existed because I, I went to a grammar school where it was all Mexican-American families or Mexican families and there were um, 
one African-American family, a couple of Chinese families, and there were four white families in my parish. So but, I feel like but, that's representative for a Los Angeles Catholic yeah, parish. But I mean, no one ever thought about it. I mean, we just, I never thought about it. I just knew I didn't like Menudo, but I liked everything Nobody. else. We Menudo. had taco Fridays instead of, you know, something else. So it was, I mean... We didn't. We didn't have hamburger day. We or hot dog day. We had taco day and stuff like that. I mean, menudo is basically like the Mexican version of you know, like a Vietnamese pho. Everything that's left over and questionable yeah. goes in there. Yeah, it's what the probably the only thing of Mexican food I don't like, but um, and I'm a very good cook. But so I think that that was I think that that was different, and I think that how one of the things that I've really worked on is trying to be to to. Um, create opportunities to select students who were, who had overcome obstacles to be where they were. And um, I had wonderful deans that I worked with who um, were old white men, but they were very supportive of what I was trying to do at the medical school. And I felt, I mean, I could do what I felt was important and what was the right thing to do so that it wasn't a matter of color. I want to interrupt you for just a moment and talk about overcoming obstacles because when we use the word worthy and we talk about women of worth, we find that two things happen with our experiences. Number one, people can't use the word worthy without wondering how it applies to them. The second part is that no one can ever tell you about a time when they are worthy or why they are worthy till they've told you about a time when they weren't and their hero's journey to becoming so. And so I'd love to know what have been some of the obstacles that you faced that really helped you examine your self-worth. And even recently, I know yeah. uh, we were talking offline earlier uh, that you are no longer with USC after a long career with them and are even exploring your own business. Right. So, and I think I have to be honest and say that I never, I never doubted my self-worth really until recently. And I wouldn't say I doubted it. I just had to refine it. I had to reorganize my thoughts. And I, as I told you, I went to feel like I went through a, a gestation period of nine months to do that. Because before I always like I always had a vision of what I wanted to do and how, what I thought was important to do. And I and I just did it. And and then so when my um, position at USC was terminated for financial reasons. I was, I had to go through thinking about, well, who am I? Because I'd been at the university so long. I mean, I was an associate dean for more than 20 years. Yeah. And it's like, that's huge. At a very prestigious school. That's a very big title. It's a very big title. You're so, a doctor. You're literally, you're Dr. Quinn. Yep. The real medicine woman. Yes. So, but it made me think about everything this past year. So it was very hard. I was, um, I would say I, I went through quite a bit of depression Rethinking about well, what's this next chapter of my life, and what does this mean? And now, having come out the other end, I realize I have so much to give, and I have, I'm always like the ideal person. And I have a dear friend named Peter Katsafrakis, who's the head of the National Board of Medical Examiners, and we worked together. He was the dean of students, and I was dean of admissions for many, many years at the med school at USC. And he'd always say, "Oh, here she comes, Peter. I've got a great idea." And I and he, but he says he miss it. He he missed that once we weren't working together anymore. But I like to think, and so now my idea is like, well, to so start my own business, which will be health related. And my idea is to, and I'm doing it with my partner, Dr. Victoria Aguilar, who was one of my medical students in my first class at USC. And um, the idea is to, to create things that will help people harness the energy in their own body to heal. And for people to realize your body has the capacity to heal, but sometimes you have to help it get stronger. So the first um, thing we're producing is actually, because I, this past year, had plantar fasciitis, which mm. was horrible. And I love to walk and I love being My busy. dad had that. He has one of those weird roller things that he's always like. So we developed using. a roller that works really, really well for oh. it and helped me cure it. So um, we, I wanted to get one out that would be designed for people to be able to cure their own foot. Because I couldn't find one that was good for me. So yeah. Anyway, just and so just other things. We so we have just ideas and but the but the idea was to come back with yes, I have worth, and it's going to be in a different way. It's I don't have to have a title and I don't have to have um, my affiliation with the university to be who I am. And the realizing that I brought a lot to USC for many many years, and the bounty from that relationship is in all the students that I'm still in touch with, you know, years and years and years later. 
And um, well, it is an unparalleled network. I mean, whenever I think of USC, I think of the network and how unparalleled it is. So it's um, it's just fun. It's just fun to see students doing who've gone on to have great careers and are helping people. And I see that all the time. And it's that to me is what's rewarding that that I've um, was able to facilitate their learning and help instill this idea of kindness and caring and being there for others. I think that's beautiful. And I love, um, you know, we were talking about age earlier, that it's at any age, right? Transitions happen all the time. We hear a lot from our, so our audience is very largely 26 to 34. And we see a couple of interesting transitions for them. We see the quarter life crisis at 25. Mm -hmm. We see the, uh, what do they call it? The Saturn return when you're like 29 or 30. I call it the I call it the panic zone yeah. and women take this two ways. They either love 30, which I loved and I called my worthy 30s when I turned 30 and it was like my best year ever and continues to be. Um or we see women that are the like the 30s are great, but the 40s are even better. That's what I've I heard. thought. Every decade got better. I, I hope really so. Did. I certainly strive to. Otherwise, what's the point? But it's interesting how we see people identify, and they get stuck on these things like, "Well, I have to do X, Y, Z by this age," and if I haven't done that, they lose their identity. Um, and similar to what you were talking about, you know, when you've been in a position for so long, or you've worked in an organization for so long, you begin to wonder. Who am I outside of this? And we see this a lot in today's job market um, where people aren't having such long careers and or they're at startups that disappear after a couple of years. And they're like, oh, my gosh, who am I in the world? Because my whole brand, my personal identity was built around me doing this here. I think one thing I would recommend to young women is to have good friends and invest time in your friendships. Oh, girlfriends are so important. I have, um, my daughter's getting married this coming weekend and, um, in Mexico, she's marrying a young Mexican guy, Edgar Diaz. I'll put in a pinch for, pitch for Edgar. And, um, so coming to the wedding are my best friend from high school, who I'm still close friends with, and she lives up in Northern California. My best friend from college, who I'm still close, close friends with who lives in New York. And my best friends from, we used to have what we call the Spanish American Club, this group of people that were married to Spaniards and lived in the LA area. And so f- my friends from that, so I, and, and then my friend Vicky, who's my friend, my Ventura friends that I've mm-hmm. made since I've lived up in Ventura for the past 20 years. So f- there'll be friends from every kind of cornerstone group of friends I've had, but I've stayed friends with everybody and my close girlfriends. And that gets you through everything. Yes. Even when a husband doesn't, the girlfriends do. Well, and I think that's so incredibly valuable because I look at my girlfriends and I have friends that I grew up with. I have two friends from high school that I'm still very close with, one of whom I've seen all of her children born. I've been in the delivery room with her. I even got to cut an umbilical cord, which I sobbed my way through and she laughed at me. Um, and then I have my friends as an as adult, right? And my close group of girlfriends now, I look at and I think, oh my gosh, how many years did I waste not investing in that? And I think we see that a lot with younger women in their 20s because they're so focused on um, the partner, the spouse, and it becomes all about that person. In fact, do you know who Helen Fisher is, Mm -hmm. cultural anthropologist? I heard her uh, with Krista Tippett on Being with her podcast, who I love and I would love to have you on this show, Krista, if you're ever listening to this, just throwing it out there in the world. And I, when I listened to that, it totally changed my experience when it comes to relationships. And she talks a lot about making your romantic relationships more friendly and your friendly relationships more romantic and how too often we, we have evolved to make our partner our one and only everything. And they can't live up to that. It's impossible. And because we're not nurturing our female relationships or other intimate relationships, right. you know, we're constantly disappointed and putting these unrealistic expectations on our partners. And that's true. I think, and I think that that's a problem because one of the things is, is that we all work so hard. It means actually making time to promote those friendships, and yeah. and you have to you have to keep working on them. It's just like a a marriage or any type of relationship. You have to do that, but you have to do it with your with your friends as well. But. I think it's one of the most important things we do. And I see that not being done enough. Yes, actually. It's true. I I can tell you, I have a friend who recently got married and she said, I said, are you excited? Have you picked your bridesmaids? She said, 
Um, and I would say that we're friendly. We're not super close, but we're very friendly. And she said, Audrey, I don't have any bridesmaids that I can ask. I don't have anybody that I'm close to. And I thought, oh my gosh, who would I have as my bridesmaid yeah. besides my sister? Maybe my best friend that I grew up with. He's a guy. He'd probably be my man of honor. Um, but it's interesting to think of those things and say, well, who would you, who would you call upon? Who are the people that you turn mm -hmm. to? And you're right. If you don't nurture it, they don't exist. You have to nurture it. And even when you're far apart, you nurture it. You make those phone calls. You catch up. You prioritize. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's it, right? It's a choice. It's always a choice. Uh, so I'd love to know from you, Erin, when you hear the word worthy, and of course, this is the Women, women of Worth podcast, what does it mean to you to be a woman of worth or a worthy woman? So that when I think about being a woman of worth, what I, what I recognize is that to be worthy is about is about what you give to others and that it's through, you know, being kind to others, our acts of kindness, what we give by listening and being there or supporting people through their hard times. I'm a really good friend. And I think that's what makes me very worthy is that I'm, I'm someone you can count on. And, and that's been lifelong. I think that's so incredible, you know, uh, and that's how trust is is built, right? Reli not just reliability, but doing what you say you're going to do and being there when somebody needs it. Um, we have the running joke in our family, I'm a good man in a storm, right? When, when crisis hits, I'm the one who can be depended on to be pretty level-headed for things. Um, but we all bring elements to the table, and I think that is such... I think it's so important to be a good friend because in today's modern world, it's so easy to not. It's so easy to have superficial relationships uh, instead of deep, meaningful ones. And like you said, it's it's the choice of whether you're going to nurture that or not. Um, and that's what gets you through the hard times. It really does. Superficial doesn't do anything. It really doesn't. And so being able to be true to yourself and to be true to others is what makes you worthy. And I think that that's why I'm saying this gestation I've just experienced. I've come out going, yes, I am worthy. I did good work. I still have good work to do. When I die, people won't talk about the about my job title. They're going to talk about how I was always fun to be with, and that uh, I, you know, always had a good laugh, and that I was a good friend. I think that's what they'll say is that she was full of love, and she shared that love and her love for life. I love that. Uh, Dr. Quinn, since you are going to be doing much more good work, where can people find you? Um, my email is uh, my name, dropping the last N, so E-R-I-N-Q-U-I-N at U-S-C dot E-D-U. I've had that email for, for when, from when they first started having emails, and then I will keep it the rest of my life as an emerita associate dean. And um, so that's a good way to reach me. But I'd love to hear from people. And um, I'm a good person to pass ideas by and get feedback. And if I can help in any way, that's what I want to do. Beautiful. Encourage people. Well, we will certainly link to that in the summary uh, of this episode. Dr. Quinn, it's been a pleasure to have you, the real medicine woman. Pleasure to meet you, Audrey. And thank you for inviting me. This has been Women of Worth.